Luke chapter 10. We're going to be starting in verse 17. Last week we talked about how Jesus sent out the 70 or the 72, depending on what you think about the Greek text there. Most of you don't care, the 70 or the 72. He sent them out, and we talked about him sending them out on mission. And in verse 17, we begin to read about their return from their mission. So Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word today, as we see these disciples who your son sent out on mission return rejoicing and success on mission, and as we see Jesus' response to them and what he teaches them about joy, Father, we pray that we'd understand that message, that it would resonate with our hearts, that you would change us, that we would be a people who who don't forget you, who always remember you. As, As we see you do great work among us, that we would not forget that it comes from your hand and not ours, that it's just a foretaste of the even greater eternal glory we have and joy we'll have in your Son. Help us, Father, as we look at your word Turn on the lights in our dark minds so we see it and understand it and love it and repent before it and rejoice in God our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Jesus, Jesus was on a mission to seek and save the lost. And we see that through the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus is on a mission to seek and to save the lost. He has come to gather his bride, the church, so that men from every tribe and tongue and nation rejoice in him. That's what he's about. And as those who are in Christ or who are his followers, his disciples, our lives now exist to join with Jesus in that mission. We're sent out on that mission Jesus came to do. We're all commanded to participate in the mission of the church to make Jesus known, and we do that in various ways. We do that through praying that the Lord would send out laborers for the harvest. We do that through telling others that we know about Jesus. We do that through participating in the ministry of the church, through serving and through financially helping the mission of Jesus' church go forward. That's how we engage in the mission with him. And many of you, many of you have participated in and continue to participate in the furtherance of Jesus' mission here in Bakersfield and abroad through participating in the ministry of this church, Sovereign Grace. It was just over six years ago that four of us met or started meeting to plan to plant this church. I still remember. It was Jason and me and Bo Woodward and another guy named Clint. And we started meeting to plan this church. And we dreamed of being a church that would delight in Jesus, that would develop in our maturity in Jesus, and that would declare Jesus to the ends of the earth. And we had very few people and even less money. Statistically, we had an 85% chance of the church plant not lasting five years. You know, that's the stat for church plants. 
Not to mention, we had the world, the flesh, and the devil opposed to our work. That's a lot. Yet God has blessed the work tremendously. Let, let me give you a mission report. You guys ready for a mission report on Sovereign Grace? Of what's happened in the space of six years. We've grown from four guys with an idea to a group of about 30 meeting on Thursday nights, six years ago this month, to nearly 300 people. We have seen in excess of 100 people saved and baptized. We have seen numerous people catch a greater glimpse of the glory of the gospel. We have seen marriages turned around. We have seen people healed through prayer. We have seen elders raised up. We've added small group ministries, youth ministry, and children's ministries. Like I said, it's gone from like three kids to like 80 children. We've held several successful women's and men's Bible studies and events. We have 20 men who are currently meeting every week at 6 o'clock in the morning to learn more theology. We have a growing and thriving counseling ministry. We've been given 18 acres of land as a gift to us. We started Radius International which is a missions organization with its own campus and its own faculty and staff that is training students as we speak, training students to go and plant churches among Muslim, Hindu, and Buddhist people groups who've never heard of Jesus. We've supported 15-plus church plants in the U.S. and abroad. We've had volunteers start ministries to the poor, the elderly, and meal ministries and other help ministries to people in our own church. We've seen rapid growth in our giving, and every year we've existed in the midst of the second greatest financial crisis in our nation's history. We're continuously seeing more people added to membership. In fact, we have 30 people in our class today, just adults. I've got even more blessings to announce to you that I'm saving for a later date. But, but here's what I want you to get a hold of. God has done all this work, work we would never have conceived of that he would have done six years ago. If you've been saved, I'm going to do a group exercise. I want to do something a little different. I don't, I don't normally do this kind of thing. We're not a super responsive church. I wish people would shout out amen. They don't. If you've been saved or baptized or otherwise had your life changed or had your understanding of the gospel changed as a result of God using sovereign grace in your life, I'm going to ask you to stand up. If that's happened to you, I want you to stand up. God has worked in you. Yeah, now, I, I just want to give you a visual. I want to give you a visual. God has done in this church. You can sit back down now. And I, I want to ask you this question. How can we not rejoice in this? How can we not? That's an incredible missions report. We all ought to be joyfully thankful and excitingly anticipating what the Lord will continue to do next. Jesus sent us on a mission in a lost and dying world, and Jesus has given, given us amazing success against all odds. And this ought to create great joy in us. But, and this is important, but there's an even greater joy. There's an even greater joy that we can lose sight of that I want to point to today. Lest we lose our focus in the midst of apparent success. Because it's when success comes that it becomes most easy to lose your focus, doesn't it? Today I want to look at the account of the return of the 72 disciples who were sent out on a mission. And I want to hear their mission report, because that's what they do. They come back and give a mission report. And I want to see how Jesus responds to their mission report. 
So what I want to do is look first at their mission report, and then I want to look really at two kinds of joy that Jesus commends to them in response. So they have this mission report, and there's two kinds of joy Jesus commends to them in response to the report. So let's look first at the mission report, verse 17 of chapter 10. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And you can understand why you would return with joy if you were sent out on mission and the demons were submitting to you. What an incredible ministry success. They're coming back. See, Jesus had sent these 72 out to declare the good news of the, king, of the coming kingdom. What's interesting, though, is he also commanded them to heal people and to cast out demons. And one of the questions that ought to strike you is, what's this all about? Why announce God's kingdom and say, let's, you also need to heal and cast out demons? Announce God's kingdom, heal and cast out demons. Why bring those things together? What's it about? Well, in order to understand what that's about, I need to begin at the beginning of the story. You ready? What is this God's kingdom about? Healing and casting out demons about. Let's go to the beginning of God's story. God created us. He put us in the garden. We were God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the garden, under God's rule and blessing in his kingdom. And Satan, Satan, that ancient serpent, Satan came as a serpent and deceived Adam and Eve. Well, really deceived Eve. Adam just blatantly sinned, right? But deceived Eve tempted Adam as well, and they both fell into sin. And they were no longer God's people. They were kicked out of God's place, the garden, and they were no longer under God's rule and blessing. And as he cursed Satan and the people, in Genesis 3.15, in the midst of the curse, he gives a promise. He says to Satan, Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and the seed of the woman, and the seed of the woman shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, I'm going to make Adam and Eve and those who are in the seed of the woman, those who believe in that seed, I'm going to make them into my people, I'm going to put them in my place, and I'm going to place them under my rule and blessing. Because the seed of the woman is going to come and step on the head of the serpent. And the promise is given even greater shape when you get to Genesis chapter 12 and God comes and sets apart this man, Abraham. He says, Abraham, you will be my people and the nation that comes from you, the Jews, you will be my people. I will take you to my place, the land, the promised land, which had the same borders as the garden, incidentally, as far as river borders are concerned. And you will be in the land and you will be under my rule and blessing. Now go. And so Abraham goes to the people and at some point the people end up in slavery in Egypt. And in the Exodus, God comes to Moses and he says to Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And God says, I'm going to take my people and I'm going to take them to my place, the land, and they're going to live under my rule and blessing as I give them the law. And so he takes them And all this, as Moses redeems them from Egypt, all this is pointing forward to Jesus. Because Jesus was God's people. He was the Son of God, the second Adam, the new and better Moses. He was God's place. The Word became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled 
among us. God was present there. He was under God's rule and blessing, and he paid for our sin on the cross, and he was resurrected from the grave, thus stepping on the head of the serpent so that all who believe in him would be God's people. In God's place, we are now the temple, and we will live in the new heavens and new earth under God's rule and blessing. And the Jews were waiting for this messianic king to come. They were waiting for this messianic kingdom in which Satan and sin would finally be conquered by their Savior. And the 72 were to go out, this was their job, to go out and proclaim that this Savior, this Messiah, has come. And they were also to go out and heal and cast out demons. Why? As a foretaste of Jesus' coming victory over Satan and sin and death. See, that's what the casting out of the demons and the healing were all about. Go proclaim my kingdom, that you are going to be God's people in God's place, under God's rule and blessing eternally, that the Messiah, the seed of the woman, has come, and he has smashed the serpent's head, and there will be no more sin, and there will be no more suffering, and there will be no more death, and there will be no more Satan, because God will have victory over him in me. Go proclaim that to them, and as you go about doing that, heal the sick and cast out the demons to give them a little taste of what's coming. And so they did. They went out on mission, and God blessed the mission. And the 72 rightly come back rejoicing that they had success in the mission. Jesus also rejoiced in their success, success, but he wanted them to remember something when they were rejoicing in their success. He wanted them to remember who gave them that success. He wanted them to remember why that joy should be directed to him and not just to their own work. And to see that, look at verse 18 and 19. As you see the first kind of joy that Jesus commends to his disciples. They're rejoicing, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. See, the first kind of joy that Jesus commends to them and to us is this. First kind of joy he commends to them and to us is this. Joy in God's work through us in the here and now. Did you hear that? Joy in God's work through us and for us, really, in the here and now. Why do I say that? Well, as they return celebrating great ministry success, Jesus makes a couple of very interesting biblical comments. And I want you to understand these are biblical comments. He's referring to other texts in Scripture. First, in verse 18, he makes this statement. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So what does it mean that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven? Well, here are the three different things scholars argue over that that possibly means. You ready? One, Jesus could be referring to the fact of Satan's original fall that we read about in places like Isaiah 14, that Satan was once um, an angel, who fell into sin because of pride, and, and that that's what Jesus is referring to. Is he saw that, and, and now, now you're tasting a little bit of his fall and God's victory over him, ultimately. Um, some scholars say, well, no, it, it refers to Satan falling as the disciples are um, being successful. As they're being successful in their ministry, in some little sense, Satan is, being, uh, is falling from his position. You guys follow that? Okay. Some scholars say, no, it, it refers ultimately to Jesus conquering Satan in the coming cross, resurrection, and return. Here's the bottom line. Scholars don't know, and neither do I. I'm just going to tell you, I don't know. 
You're going to have to be okay with the fact that I don't know exactly what the referent is. Here's what we do know. We do know that in some way, the disciples were experiencing victory over Satan. And Jesus is pointing to that. The demons were submitting to them. They were receiving in some way, and in the ultimate way, they were seeing a foretaste of Jesus' victory over Satan. This is a taste of the ultimate victory of Satan that was promised in Genesis 3.15, which the Savior would crush the head of the serpent. Second, here's the second biblical comment Jesus makes. Look at verse 19. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. What in the world is meant by what in the world is meant by authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and all the power of the enemy so that nothing shall hurt you? Clearly the text is focusing on authority of some kind and in some way that they're invincible while they're on God's mission and he has use of them. But what some people have done is they've done really strange things with this text. You guys may be aware of that, especially in the South. Some people have done some very odd things with this text. What they've done is they've taken this text in combination with the story in Acts about Paul on the island of Malta where the adder grafts onto him and he shakes it off into the fire and then he lives. And they take those two texts together and they say, if you have real faith, the way you demonstrate it is through handling poisonous snakes. So they bring poisonous snakes in the worship service and they play with them. It's part of worship. Now that's odd behavior. Clearly not what Jesus is talking about. Okay? Clearly not. The disciples didn't say, great, Jesus, let's go gather some snakes then and play with them, right? That's not what you see as their behavior. What is he talking about? You can't be meaning that they're ultimately invincible because look at the next phrase. He says, and nothing shall hurt you. Nothing? That's a, that's a universal negation. Nothing shall hurt you. Really? Does that mean I'm invincible? Serpents and snakes, I'll tread on them? Or serpents and scorpions, I'll tread on them? They won't hurt me? Nothing will hurt me? Nothing at all? Wow. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? You better understand the context of what he's saying or you could get real confused by this kind of stuff. We know that many of these same disciples were beaten and martyred. Clearly something hurt them. We know that Christians throughout history were martyred. Christians throughout history have likely even been harmed by snakes, snake bites and scorpions, right? So what's Jesus saying? Well, what's happening in the story is the question we ought to ask. What's happening in the story? Jesus is coming to redeem his people. He's coming to lead them into his place, his kingdom, and to graciously allow them to live under his rule and blessing. And he sent the 72 disciples on a mission to declare this. And he has given them victory and authority over Satan and sin and death. And in some small ways, he's demonstrating what he's doing. And the 72 are experiencing this great success as God's people. And Jesus doesn't want them to forget that this is all happening because of his work and not because of theirs. So essentially he tells them, Satan is falling. That's why my, that, that is my work. And that is why you're experiencing great success. Because I'm having victory over Satan. You'll tread on serpents and scorpions. You'll have authority over spirits. Nothing will harm you. That's my authority. That's my protection over you. That's why you have the success. How do I know that? Well, because this treading on serpents and scorpions is not new to God's people. Did you know that? Jesus is actually making a reference to the Old Testament when he says that. 
when God was redeeming Israel in the Exodus, and when he was taking his people to live in his place under his rule and blessing, they got a taste of the same authority and protection. And I think what Jesus is doing is saying that he's, he's leading a new exodus, if you will, of his people, making us citizens of the kingdom with blessings and protection and authority over demons, all as a foretaste of the eternal kingdom that's ours. So look with me at, Luke, or excuse me, at Deuteronomy chapter 8. Hold your hand there in Luke 10 and look, look at Deuteronomy chapter 8. I want you to see this. There, Deuteronomy, so you know, is the second law. Okay, what does that mean? God's people, God's people have been taken from Exodus. Uh, in, in, in the book of Exodus, they've been taken from Egypt. They've traveled, and they're on their way to God's place, to the land. They're on the way to the promised land. And on, their, on their way there, the first generation of Israelites falls into sin, and, and to such a degree that God says, I'm not going to let you see the promised land. What I'm going to do instead is I'm going to send the second generation of the promised land. And Joshua ends up leading them in. And you read about that in Joshua. But what happens is, before he takes them in the promised land, you get this Deuteronomy, this second law. The second telling of the law. In other words, what's happening is, the story of the Exodus and the lessons from the Exodus are being told to the second generation. It's like Moses is giving a sermon saying, Here's what you need to know about what God's done with his people. Let me give you a little bit of history. Let me tell you the lessons so that you don't repeat our sin and our error. And so he's giving that in Deuteronomy. And here he talks about um, this commandment the Lord gives in chapter 8. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. See, he swore to give it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He swore to do that, and you're going to go in and possess it. Verse 2, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you'd keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, did your fa- nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandment of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper." And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. Here's the point so far. God is taking you into his kingdom, his land. And it's just going to be a taste, ultimately, of the ultimate promised land, the new heavens and new earth. That's why Abraham, even as he arrived there, dwelt in tents, the Hebrews, Hebrews 11 tells. He dwelt in tents because he, he was looking forward to the land, the city whose architect and builder was God. He knew this was just a taste. It was just a picture. It was just a sample of the eternal kingdom. But God is re- leading you there, and he's going to bless you. He's redeemed you for this purpose, and now what I want you to do is don't forget him. 
Remember that he humbled you, that you're sinners, that you don't deserve to be there. Enjoy what he's given you, but don't forget him when you're enjoying it. And keep on living according to his law as you're enjoying it. And he goes on in verse 11. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God. That's what happens when success comes, isn't it? Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you've eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery who led you through great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Hear that? Israel, God has given you this great success, Israel. God has redeemed you and led you into this land, which is a picture and a foretaste of what's to come. He's caused you to tread on serpents and scorpions. He's provided you. He's given you the power to gather great wealth and have great abundance, and blessing. He's done all that. Be careful because when that stuff comes, your heart will start to think, look at what my hands have done. Look at what I've brought. And you forget the Lord. And you forget that this is all part of his promise, a promise he made to your fathers generations ago. And he's filling it in, your, in front of you. And what Jesus is coming along and doing in, with the 72 is he saying, you should rejoice in this ministry success. I've given it to you. I've brought victory over that ancient serpent. I've given you authority and I'm protecting you. I'm doing all this so you can have a taste of the blessings of the eternal kingdom. I'm doing all this so you can make that kingdom known to others. Don't forget who's giving you the success. Enjoy the success you see from your hands, but remember whose hand it really comes from. And don't forget me. Remember that it's all, it's all given to you because I made this promise to your fathers that I would give it to you. And that I'm your ultimate joy, not this stuff. See, once you lose sight of who brings success on mission, once you lose sight of who brings success on mission, and in life, you begin to forget the Lord. If you're successful, here's how that happens. There's, there's two ways you forget him, if you're successful or if you're unsuccessful. You ready? Here's how it happens if you're successful. If you're successful, you forget the Lord and become prideful. You become puffed up. You find your identity in your success because you think this success comes from your hand. Let, let this be a warning to us, Sovereign Grace. Churches that drink in their success too much inevitably experience mission drift. There are lots of good things happening, but no one really knows what the mission is anymore. As this situation deteriorates further, the church begins to think that power and ministry comes from their efforts. 
Thus, the centrality of the gospel, pre- of gospel preaching and the centrality of prayer is replaced by the centrality of principles and programs. And the vision of the church is no longer Jesus, but instead it's the dream of its leaders. On the flip side, if you fail, you forget the Lord and you become distressed and depressed and you suffer with identity issues. Why? Because you also think, I want you to hear this, because you also think that success comes from your hand, but you've just failed to achieve it. Churches that go here often rip each other apart, point the finger at the pastor or at the lack of programs or at the music style. Few people remain who believe that if we go deeper into preaching and prayer, God may sovereignly rebuild the ministry. Or, and I want you to hear this, or he may sovereignly choose not to, and either outcome is from his sovereign hand. Any victory, any authority, any protection we enjoy comes from the hand of the Lord. Sovereign grace, if God continues to bless our work that we've seen thus far, we cannot lose sight of the fact that it is God who brings success in ministry, and God does this through the proclamation of his word and, and through prayer, period. Not through anything else. The moment we forget that, mission drift has begun, and we begin to think it's the work of our own hands and not the work of the Lord. This leads to the second kind of joy that Jesus commends to his disciples. Here's what it is. Second kind of joy. Joy in our eternal security in Christ. Do you hear that? Joy in our eternal security in Christ. Look at verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Notice first that verse 20 really begins to confirm our understanding that Jesus is not commending snake handling to you, right? But he's talking about a spiritual dynamic in which we taste some victory over Satan in the here and now when he makes this comment, do not rejoice in this, the spirits are subject to you. That's the main topic that he's addressing. But what Jesus goes on to do is to make a comparative comment by the use of negation. You guys do this all the time. You make comparative comments by the use of negation all the time. Here's what he's saying. What Jesus, he's saying this, don't rejoice in your success and mission. Sovereign Grace, I'm glad you gave a hand clap and we're excited about what you saw. Don't rejoice in that. Don't rejoice in your, your taste of victory over Satan and sin and death. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And you hear that and you go, Jesus, are you being some kind of cosmic killjoy? Trying to take away all the excitement we have about what you're doing? That's not what he's doing. He's making a comparative statement by way of negation. It's, it's like Jesus is saying this. Don't exchange the appetizer for the main course. Ready? If, if you were eating a great appetizer, let's say you were at my house and I served you some great appetizer, and you're eating a great appetizer and, you get, and, and you're just like, man, this is awesome. And I say, don't, d- don't, don't get too excited about that appetizer. Wait, wait, till you, wait till you taste the main course. It's nothing compared to the main course. You would not then think, that I'm saying, don't enjoy the appetizer, would you? You would understand that I was saying that in comparison to the goodness of the main course, the goodness of the appetizer is just a little taste. And Jesus is saying this, you may have had a good taste of good things in the here and now because of me, but that's just a taste. It's nothing compared to the eternal blessings you'll receive. All good things now are just a taste. I want you to think of the good things now, the, ma- the majestic vista of mountains that you see. 
the roaring oceans as they crash against the beach, and the transcendence of the creation when we see the universe, the incredible music that you hear and art that you gaze upon and love that you feel with your spouse and joy that you see in the success of your children. And all of that is just a taste. It's just a little taste of the eternal blessings and eternal joy we have in God in Christ. And he uses this interesting phrase, Jesus uses this phrase to make this point about our ultimate blessings. He said, do not rejoice in this, the spirits, are, the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What's that about? Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Uh, let me say this. I think we all know the importance of having our names written somewhere, don't we? We, we all do. Uh, how many of us go when we get married to apply for a, wedding, a marriage license, right? There's something about recording what's happened, this transaction that's taken place, this covenant that's been made. When we're born, we get a birth certificate. There's a recording of, of some event in our life, our birth. We go to great lengths. People go to great lengths to get their names in a book. There was a book that came out called Young, Restless, and Reformed, and it mentions me. It doesn't name my name, which disappointed me, but it mentions me by description. I was all excited, and, right? But it doesn't name me. And I was like, why am I so excited about this? Who cares? <laughs> you know? We work to get our name on a brick or on a list or on a membership roll. My wife and I always see the, the name when we go to Disneyland, all the, all the bricks outside, and there's people's names. They bought those bricks, so their family name is there. It's a God-given instinct in us that demonstrates the longing we all have to be known and to belong and to be remembered. If you were returning to America from a foreign, hostile country, you would anxiously desire that your name was written down in the records here so to prove your citizenship and right to be here, wouldn't you? And this was true throughout Scripture as well. Having your name written down in the Bible is a big deal. You see the importance of it in genealogies. You read whole chapters of people's names being written down. Most importantly, we see how Scripture bears witness to this through multiple references to this book of life. In Exodus 32, 32, Moses actually asks God to blot out his name from the book of life in order to see the Israelites saved. Go into the promised land. Blot my name out if you have to. You see this kind of fervor with Paul as well where he says that he, in Romans 9, that he would, he would be accursed and damned to see his people, as Jews, according to kin, kinsmen, according to the flesh, saved. They want to see him saved. But they know they can't be blotted out. But they're willing to do, to do that to say, see other people saved. We see that with Moses in Exodus 32, the book of life. In Daniel chapter 12, there's a reference to this book of life when it says this, as Daniel's writing, he says, at that time, at the end, shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge over your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time, but at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book what book? This book of life, the one that Moses references in Exodus 32, Daniel references in and Daniel 12, Paul references it in Philippians chapter 4 and in verse 3 when he talks about his fellow workers in the gospel and he makes the statement in, verse, in chapter 4 verse 3, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. 
It's referenced as well in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. It's referenced with regard to those who will not follow the beast because their names are in the book. And all who dwell on earth shall worship it, the beast, but everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life, and it was everyone who's going to do that is everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of, the, of life of the lamb that was slain. In other words, if your name was not in that book, you're going to follow the, that antichrist, false prophet, the beast. But if your name is written in the book before the foundation of the world, you're, you won't follow him. That book is referenced over and over and over again and finally referenced in Revelation chapter 20 at the great white throne judgment. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's what Jesus is referring to here in Luke 10. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Where? In the book of life. Where they were written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Rejoice that God's written your name there. Nothing is greater than having your name written in the book of life. It means, listen, if your name is written in the book of life, it means that you are eternally known and loved by God. You will never be forgotten. Your name will never be blotted out. What could lead to greater joy in you, Christian, than to know that your name is known and recorded by and remembered by and treasured by and loved by God. It's greater than that. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's called as one of my heroes in the faith. I've read pretty much everything I think he's ever written or preached that's been recorded. He's perhaps the greatest 20th century preacher, at least in Great Britain, if not here as well. He had great success in ministry. If you don't aren't familiar with him. Great success in ministry. Thousands of people were saved. Multiple ministries were started as a result of the work God did through him. And many other well-known leaders were deeply impacted him. Men like J.I. Packer, John Stott. I could go down the list. At the end of his life, Martin, um, the doctor they called him, was basically um, confined to his bed. He could get up two or three hours a day maybe. He wasn't able to do much in ministry And his friend and biographer, a man named Ian Murray, and I I commend you to buy the biographies of Ian Murray of Martin Lloyd-Jones and read them. That's one of the best things you'll ever read in your life. There's a two-volume biography by Ian Murray. Ian Murray is one of his friends and biographer. He meets with Dr. Lloyd-Jones, and he's, he's thinking to himself that it must be very difficult for him to not be able to do much anymore. After this prolific ministry, now he's sort of bedridden and confined and not able to do much. And so... He's talking to him, and he asks him, trying to be sensitive, how are, you, how are you doing now? How are you doing now that you know your ministry is so confined? How, how are you doing with that, doc, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, now that your ministry is so confined? And Lloyd-Jones responded to him, and here's his response. 
Do not rejoice that the demons are subject to you in my name, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. I am perfectly content. Are you perfectly content that your name is written in heaven? Or are you looking for success in this world to fuel your joy and contentment? Do you even know if your name is written in the book of life that's in heaven? If not, let me ask you a simple set of questions. Do you know there's a holy God who's created all things? And do you know that you're a sinner who is his enemy and that his judgment is upon you? Do you recognize you need forgiveness for your sins? That you need to be saved? Do you trust that God loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus to live the life that you failed to live and to pay the penalty that was due to you on the cross and to resurrect from the grave conquering sin and death on your behalf? Do you trust that Jesus alone is your hope and salvation? That Jesus alone is your righteousness? And that your righteousness, because it's in him, is never changing because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Have you repented of your sins and your self-righteousness and turned to Jesus and asked him to save you? If you have not, then you need to repent. Turn and look to Jesus in faith now. For today is the day of salvation. But on that great day when Jesus returns, it is no longer the day of salvation. It's a terrible day of the Lord. And if your name is not found written in the book, you will be cast into hell. If you're trusting in him, if you are trusting in him, then your name is written in the book in heaven. It's there. And in this and above all else, you should re- in this above all else, you should rejoice. For God knows your name. And God loves you. And God will never forget you or blot you out of his book. You are God's delight and his joy. And he is your reward. What could be greater news than that? What could give us greater joy than that? Sovereign grace, do not rejoice in this, that God has blessed us with an amazing ministry here. But above all else, we ought to rejoice that our names are written in the book in heaven, that we're his, that he knows us, that he'll never forget us, that he'll remember us always, that we're his delight that he loves us eternally, and that he is our reward in whom we will experience the eternal increase of joy. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would work powerfully in us, that we would find joy in you, that if there are people here who aren't saved, aren't looking to your son, that they would look to him in faith and be saved that they would have an assurance that their names are written in the book of life, that they've been written there before the foundation of the world because you love them, you gave your son for them. They would trust in him and be saved. Father, we pray for those of us who do know you, who know that our names are in your book, are written in heaven. Father, that we would find our great joy there, that we would not let success or lack thereof in this world be the fuel for our contentment and joy, but that, but that being known by you and being yours would be our joy, that you being ours would be our joy.
Father, that we would rightly be thankful for the ministry success you've given us, the taste of the kingdom, the eternal blessings we'll have with you that you give us each day, that we would rightly rejoice in those. But, Father, that we would rightly rejoice in them knowing they're from your hand, not forgetting you, and ultimately knowing that they're just a taste of the great blessings we have in your Son. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.